0: A Fairchild Metroliner crashes on landing in Cork, Ireland in foggy weather. What actually caused the small airliner to crash? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
1: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And w- hi, everybody. And hi. And hi. Hi. <laughs> Hopefully everyone's doing okay. We yeah. we just went to Chicago. Woo. We had a good time. Those of you who enjoyed our rainbow tunnel video.
0: <laughs> yeah, we didn't uh, do anything in Chicago.
1: No, we stayed in the airport yep. and went through the rainbow tunnel. Yeah, and ate hot dogs and then came back.
0: Yep. <laughs> to clarify, we flew on a triple seven both ways, and we did this because the other two here have never been on them. Yeah, wide body. we explained
1: that on the on our. Uh, social medias yes and also we might we'll talk more about the all the stuff that happened on that trip in our post episode yeah so if you want to know more about that yeah stay tuned also reminder because you know just in case we haven't done anything with this yet go submit your stories to the listener submission button on our website com to share your aviation stories with us
2: yeah, it sounded like the flight attendant on our flight yesterday actually was really excited to share stories. He's like, "I've been in this for twenty years. I got stories." Yeah. yeah, we'll talk.
1: We'll talk more about what was going on with him because it was, it was actually very funny. Because he was like, "What? Didn't we see you earlier?" <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk that's more about always, that later. It's um, always trippy. But you know, we just thought we'd we'd share a little bit about our weekend with you because reasons, reasons, and yeah, and reasons and reasons. Okay,
0: and reason.
1: Nick, what are we covering today?
0: Today we are covering Manx two Flight Seventy One Hundred.
2: Thank you to Alan Aldridge for recommending
0: this. Okay, yeah.
1: he just commented on all our stuff too. Yeah, he did. <laughs> That's great.
0: Yep. Yeah, so the, I mean the it's confusing because Manx two means it is the second iteration of Manx Airlines. But that so is So
1: when I saw it, because I had to look up the report for this one, I mm-hmm. was like, Man X two? Nope, Manx. Man times two. <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird name for an airline. A Manx is a Gaelic cat. Ah, so then it kind of makes sense.
0: Yes, because this is in Ireland.
2: Oh, wait, 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 wait. There's more history. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Manx, also known as Manx Gaelic and also historically spelled M-A-N-K-S, is a member of the Goidelic Language Branch of the Celtic Languages of the Indo-European language family. It was spoken as a first language by some of the Manx people on the Isle of Man. Which is where this airlines is from. Ah. Yes,
0: this airline is based on the Isle of Man. We'll get into all that later.
1: But now it makes but sense. But it's also the name of a cat.
0: Yes. This happened on February the 10th of 2011, so pretty recent. Yeah, relatively recently. Yeah, within the last 10 years. This was a Fairchild Metroliner, a small 19-seat twin turboprop airplane. We've talked about it before and its terrible names. It has the tail number of Echo Charlie Dash India Tango Papa. All letters. It's actually pretty rare to have all letters. Although, a lot of the European countries do that. The captain for this flight was to be Jordi Sola Lopez. He was 31 years old from Barcelona.
1: Barcelona.
0: Barcelona. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> he had 1,800 hours total, of which 1,600 were on the Metroliner. So, almost all of his hours. Only 200 hours, essentially, on anything else. The first officer was Andrew Kentle. He was 27 years old. He was from Sunderland, England. He had 539 hours total, of which 289 hours were on the Metroliner. So he was a very low time pilot in theory for an airline. This was from Belfast to Cork. This flight, Belfast That's to- relatively short, right? Yeah, pretty short. Yeah. Belfast, Ireland, Northern Ireland, to be clear, which is the UK, to Cork, which, which is Ireland, um, which actual is Ireland, separate.
2: On the southern
0: coast. Yes, on the southern, near the southern coast of Ireland.
2: Fun fact, Nick and I have been to Cork, and it is one of my favorite places in Ireland. Actually, it might be my favorite place in Ireland. I
1: want to go so bad. We're going next year. Next year.
0: But our story will start on February the 9th, the date before. On February the 9th of 2011, the aircraft operated a series of cargo flights overnight. For this to be done, the seats were to be removed from the airplane. The cargo crew operated the plane from Belfast to Edinburgh to Inverness and back to Belfast.
1: So to Scotland.
0: Yes, on end Scotland and.
1: That was a list of places I want to go. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's like my travel. Shout out time. to our friends in Scotland and Ireland. Ireland.
0: Yeah, this was operated under a contract with the UK Royal Mail. Upon return to Belfast at five ten a.m., the cargo crew reinstalled the seats on the aircraft. Yes, the crew of the cargo flight were in charge of reinstalling the seats. Interesting. Uh huh. Another crew, the accident crew, then arrived at the airport at 6.15 a.m. on the 10th now. So this is, you know, the following morning. At 6.25 a.m., the flight crew downloaded their documentation, including the weather information for their flight from Belfast to Cork. At 6.40 a.m., the flight operated a short flight, empty, from one airport to another in Belfast, where it would pick up the first passengers for the day.
1: There's more than one in Belfast? Yes. Were they in, like, a a small airport before, and then they went to a passenger airport? Actually,
0: they flew to the smaller airport. Oh. They went from what is now Belfast International, it's the bigger airport, where they did the crew change and all that, to the Belfast City Airport, which is significantly closer to Belfast itself. The Belfast International Airport's actually in another town, outside of Belfast, a ways out, and the Belfast City Airport is right smack in the middle of downtown. So they flew into the little airport in the middle of downtown, which operates commercial flights as well. to
1: pick up the passengers.
0: Passengers. They arrived at 7.15 a.m. to the gate at the smaller Belfast City Airport. The flight was to then turn around within 35 minutes to depart for Cork. In that time, 800 liters of fuel was added for a total of 3,000 pounds of fuel. The flight plan specified Waterford Airport as an alternate landing option.
1: And where is Waterford?
0: It's just mid-Southern Ireland.
1: So that's their, uh, why can't I think of the word? Just alternate. Alternate. If they had to divert. Divert. Thank you. I was like, I I know the word. (laughs) So So that's their diversion
0: airport if they had to divert.
2: That's Waterford. That's Cork.
1: Okay.
0: Because of the seat installation, boarding the passengers had been delayed. Ten passengers boarded and took and took their seats, but seating was not assigned. It was just first come first serve, so they took huh. random seats. Okay. The not flight
1: great, but okay. Well, that's. I mean, Southwest does that. Yep. I mean, that's true. At least they have a manifest, right? Please tell me they have a manifest.
0: Yes, just of names. Okay. <laughs> You'd be surprised though how many airlines actually do that around the world.
1: They just are like get on and get in a seat.
0: Yep. The flight took off at eight ten a.m. They climbed to twelve thousand feet for cruising altitude. The first officer was the pilot flying, and the captain was the pilot not flying, or pilot monitoring. At 8:34 a.m., the flight made contact with Shannon Air Traffic Control, and then at 8:48 a.m., they were handed over to the Cork Approach Controller. The Cork ATIS indicated that runway 35 was active. The ATIS being the Automated Terminal Information System. For those that don't remember, that is what provides you with weather and general information about the airport. It indicated that runway 35 was active at the airport and it also indicated that there was low visibility procedures in place
1: so there might have been some weather
0: there was some weather the approach controller informed the crew that 35 was in use but that category 2 approaches were available on runway 17 and so when when we talk about category 2 we're talking about the instrument landing system and essentially there's three categories and it depends on the type of airplane what the instrumentation is on board, how accurate it is. Basically, there's all these different levels. There's these three different levels, I should say, and one being the lowest, three being the highest, and as, as the weather conditions permit, you can use the instrument landing systems to land the airplane. Now, in this case, their airplane was, the airplane and their crew were only certified for a Category 1 approach, and they were informed that Category 2 was in place. The aircraft established itself on the ILS approach to Runway 17, hoping that the weather conditions would get better. They did this at 8.58 a.m., and they were handed over to the Cork Tower Controller. At 9 a.m., the minimum visibility reported by Cork was still below that required by the flight. So the minimum visibility conditions were still lower than what they needed. The flight reached the outer marker and continued their approach. The flight reached the minimum decision altitude, which is about 200 feet, And continued the approach anyway, even though they were still not in visual contact with the runway and on a Category 2, which they weren't supposed to be doing in Category 2.
1: Technically against airline procedure.
0: Yep. The flight then carried out a missed approach at 9.03 a.m. The lowest altitude that they reached was 101 feet above the ground, so low, way below decision altitude. The flight was then passed back to the approach controller... The air traffic controller then vectored the flight back around for another approach, this time for runway 35, the opposite end of the same runway. The flight crew indicated to air traffic controller that they hoped that this would assist them with visuals of the runway because the sun would be at their tail. They complained that the sun was too in their face as they were trying to land on runway 17, even with the clouds. At 9:10 a.m. and 45 seconds, the flight was handed back to the tower controller about 8 nautical miles from Touchdown. The minimum visibility was still reported below the required minimum for the flight. The approach was continued past the outer marker again. The aircraft descended below the decision altitude again. And at 9.14 a.m., a a missed approach was carried out again at an altitude of 91 feet. So even lower. At 9.15 a.m., the flight requested to enter a hold for 15 to 20 minutes. About a minute later, they asked for a hold for 15 to 20 minutes to see if the weather conditions would improve. The flight entered a holding pattern over Roval, that is just a a uh, BOR point, and they maintained 3,000 feet. While in the hold, the flight requested the weather conditions for the alternate airport, Waterford. The air traffic controller reported that the conditions w- there were also below the minimums required for the flight. The flight then requested weather info for Shannon, even further away, where the conditions were also below the minimum required. So now they're starting to really feel like, oh, we don't have anywhere to land. At 9.35 a.m., the crew requested weather for Dublin, which the air traffic controller reported as operational, but with poor visibility.
1: So, it was just really bad all the way around. All the way around. This is pretty normal
2: for Ireland.
0: Yes. They call it being in the soup.
2: It comes with having coast along the Atlantic. Yep. It's just not great for not having fog. Right. So, the one day we were in Cork, I can say that we didn't have fog but most other days that we were in Ireland, it was pretty foggy. And it's with that kind of humidity, that's how the landscape stays so lush and green.
0: Yep. Pretty normal there.
1: Also, <laughs> can I just say it's kind of weird that they had to make two missed approaches at the wrong altitudes to be like, maybe we should look into another airport.
0: Yeah. It is a little strange. You can
1: see outside. Yep. On whether or not you can see the runway. Yep. So the fact that. First of all, they tried to make approaches that, and decided to go around too low, which, by the way, is super duper dangerous. Yes, it is. And we've talked about that before. You need to make sure that you know what that altitude is. And if you can't see the runway by that point, you need to go around if you're doing VFR, right? So the fact that it took them twice and they still are like, I don't know what we're doing.
0: Right. Concerning. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. ATC then offered an, to obtain the conditions for the Kerry Airport. The conditions at Kerry were reported as good with visibility of over 10 kilometers. So that airport actually would have been a decent airport to land at. But regardless to that, at 9.33, the flight was still holding when conditions began to improve at Cork, though they were still below the minimum. So the crew requested another attempt at Runway 17. At 9.45 and 22 seconds, the crew reported established the ILS for Runway 17. The aircraft was configured for landing with landing gear down and flaps at half. So basically there's only two configurations for this airplane, half and full. At 9.45 a.m. and 26 seconds, while the flight was at 11 nautical miles, when the visibility for the runway had improved to 550 meters which was the required minimum. So they actually could have landed in that. This info was passed on to the crew with, by ATC. However, 12 seconds later, the flight was handed back to the Cork Tower, and just a second later, the crew reported to air traffic control that they were passing nine nautical miles out, and then the visibility degraded back to 500 to 400 meters, which was below <laughs> the minimum. Well, to Ireland. So within 13 seconds, they were back below, too low for the aircraft's, Requirements.
1: It sounds a lot like Colorado weather.
0: Yeah, it changes. I mean, we don't get quickly. fog
1: here, but the, the weather here changes so often. So it can change so quick. Yes. That you're like, oh, it's sunny. Oh, wait, it, it's pouring rain outside. Yep. Oh, wait, now I it's I swear, snowing. I didn't <laughs> even see any
0: clouds 20 minutes ago. What just happened?
1: <laughs> what happened? That happened today. We weren't supposed to get any rain today.
0: Yeah. And mean rain.
1: Yep. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that it can happen so fast. Yep. Especially when it just went right within, and it's like, nope. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: They then continued the approach after passing the outer marker, and then as briefed by the captain earlier, the captain then took control of the power levers while the first officer continued to fly the plane. What? Yeah, you just gave a weird look for a reason. Yes. No. Normally when you're flying (laughs) the airplane, you do both. Yes. So the co-pilot should have been doing both, but the captain took over the power levers as he had briefed earlier.
2: Are we using the term co-pilot, not first officer?
0: You can do either one. The report uses commander and co-pilot.
1: Yeah, sometimes they're interchangeable. The person who is not flying is the one that's controlling the levers is the problem here. Yep. That's not, that's a boo-boo. I cannot believe that that is like, okay.
0: Well, we'll get into that. (laughs) The flight then descended below the decision altitude again. The captain then reduced the power to land and the plane suddenly rolled heavily to the left. Just below 100 feet above the ground, the captain declared a go-around, which was acknowledged by the first officer. The captain then applied the go-around power on the power levers. And at the same moment, the airplane suddenly rolled rapidly to the right beyond 90 degrees wing down. Right wing down. Yeah, heavy to the right. Oh, no. The right wing tip contacted the runway and broke apart as the plane continued to roll over to the right. The stall warning sounded continuously for the final seven seconds of the flight. The airplane impacted the runway inverted, and came to rest off of the right side of the runway upside down. This is
1: why you don't make that decision so low. Correct. So when there's if, a lot of reasons. Well, there's a lot, lot of reasons. This is yes. this is a big reason, especially for the fact that they can't see the runway. Right. So. You need to do the go-around by that certain minimums, right? Mm -hmm. That's why they have minimums. Right. You need to make sure you do the go-around so that if something weird happens, like what happened, you don't hit the ground at any point. Yep. So, yeah, that's, uh, oops.
0: Yep. (laughs) The impact occurred at 9.50 a.m. and 34 seconds under foggy conditions. Now I'm going to read you the statements of the passengers that were given. Of those that survived, anyway. Of those that survived.
1: I didn't even know anybody survived.
0: It's pretty insane that anybody did, to be honest.
1: Yeah, it's a little freaky.
0: So these are verbatim from the report. They actually had them written out, the passenger statements. Passenger A was seated in mid-cabin on the left-hand side. Quote, I do remember looking out, and the ground was just feet from below us, and it was grass. It was definitely not tarmac, and the pilot then gave the plane thrust to come out of the cloud. And at that stage, the cloud was right uh, right to the ground. I feel that the plane immediately after the thrust veered to the right and tilted. The right hand of the wing caught the ground first. After that, it was just mayhem. I couldn't breathe because all the mud had come up into the fuselage. I do remember pushing the mud away and then being able to breathe. Mud? Uh-huh. It impacted straight into the dirt on, off the side of the runway. And Ew. went into the cabin.
1: Ew. Mm-hmm.
0: Passenger B who was seated mid-cabin on the right-hand side. We came through the cloud or fog. We were probably no more than about 30 feet off the ground. We seemed to be coming in at a bit of an obtuse angle. I was looking out the window. I sensed that we pulled up and banked hard to the right. As we banked, the wing I was sitting next to, the tip of it. the wing hit. Passenger C, seated towards the rear of the cabin on the left-hand side. There was a big turn, I think to the right. I just remember feeling this huge shift to the right. That's their entire one. Hmm. Uh, Passenger D is not much longer. They were seated towards the front of the cabin on the right-hand side. It felt to me like the plane had gone at a 90-degree angle and was facing towards the ground. Huh. Mm Mm-hmm. Passenger E seated mid-cabin on the right-hand side. It was cloudy, it didn't clear anything, and then it felt like a normal landing, and then everything just crumpled, basically. So, even more vague. And Passenger F, who was seated... Mid-cabin on the left-hand side had no recollection of the final approach and impact.
1: Well, it, it doesn't surprise me. I'm surprised anyone remembered anything.
0: Well, You'd yeah. be in shock right yes. after that happened. Well, yes, considering that the two crew members on board, the captain and first officer, as well as four passengers, perished in the accident. Also, then, four passengers were seriously injured, and two passengers were only minorly injured, which is just unbelievable. The runway had extensive damage. The airplane was upside down, and the nose was crushed where it had impacted the ground. A small fire had ensued, but was quickly put out by the emergency crews. So that said, the tower controllers had received an alarm about an ELT, or an emergency locator transmitter, and thought that it might have been from a hard landing from the airplane. (laughs) Hard landing. Hello. But they couldn't see the plane in the fog, so they didn't know for sure. They pressed the emergency button in the tower and quickly, by phone, informed the emergency crews of the ELT alarm. The emergency crews went to the runway. They started at the threshold of the runway and worked their way down the runway. They came across the crash a ways down the runway and reported to the air traffic controllers their worst nightmare. Crash, crash, crash. The airplane was completely destroyed.
1: Yikes. That doesn't surprise me, though. No. The fact that, and we've said this, but the fact that anyone survived, yeah, or that they remembered anything, yeah, is surprising. Yes. Because they were just lucky, because having that bad of an impact, ouch. Yeah. This
2: investigation was performed by the Air Accident Investigation Unit of Ireland, who I feel like probably doesn't investigate a whole lot of crashes.
0: Probably not, especially considering that this one was Ireland's deadliest crash in 45 years.
1: That's kind of crazy. Good for
0: Ireland. I mean, yes, this... To us doesn't seem like a very big accident, but it is for them. It drew a lot of media attention, as a matter of fact.
2: They also aren't, just aren't a big country? No. Okay, back to what I was saying. So, a fair bit of what the witnesses had reported, or what the survivors had reported, was confirmed in the wreckage that was strewn in a trail of 600 feet long, or about 180 meters. Because of the extent of the wreckage and the possibility of impending weather... Investigators decided to implement some new technology that I personally have used before, but I hadn't heard of it being used in an accident investigation before. They used a laser 3D scanner to capture the entire wreckage site, so they would have documentation of it even after it needed to be moved to the hangar. From this data, they were able to reverse engineer the impact sequence. As usual, we have pictures on our website, and I'm showing them now to everyone here. From the impact marks, as well as what wreckage was found, the investigators were able to confirm what witnesses said that the right wing tip was the first thing to impact the ground, mostly evident from the green navigation light that was found just left of the center line. From this damage, it was also determined that when the wing struck, the plane was already flying perpendicular to the ground and was on its way to inversion, which is ultimately how it came to rest. From this sequence, investigators began to investigate the following scenarios that may have led to a loss of control. A flight control problem, primary instrument failure, bad signals from the ILS, incorrect display of ILS signals, incapacitation of crew, or an engine propeller engine control anomaly. On the Metroliner, the flight control surfaces are controlled by cables and not hydraulics. Pretty normal for this class of plane. Investigators initially did find that many cables were severed but did not find any pre-existing defects like fatigue and found the damage to be from having to cut survivors out of the wreckage.
0: Yep. So they literally had cut the cables when they were just evacuating people.
2: Yep. So they ruled out any failure of control surfaces. Investigators then looked into an instrument failure in the cockpit, as that could have contributed to a spatial disorientation caused by instruments. But once the instruments were removed from the wreckage and tested, it was found that they were functioning normally at the time of impact. So investigators determined that instrument failure was not a factor of this crash. Next was the instrument landing system, or ILS. It was actually really easy to roll out this one because it is continuously and automatically monitored and there were no warning or failure indications during the final approach, and it was inspected the day after the accident with no anomalies. The systems in the plane to receive and read the ILS were also found to be operating normally. At this point, investigators had access to the data from the black boxes, and from the cockpit voice recorder, they had determined that the flight crew was not incapacitated.
0: Definitely important. Yes. I mean, definitely with the weather, there was a big question about disorientation, and I mean, could they have ended up in this situation because the weather was disorienting?
1: Okay, here's the deal. So, the reason why I find it super hard to believe they were disoriented is, they knew... At what point they couldn't see the runway, and they decided to do a go-around. It was below minimums every time they decided to do it. Yep. But they knew they had to do it because they knew they couldn't see the ground. Right. Which to me says they knew that the ground was somewhere below them. They just couldn't see it. So my problem is, were they disoriented? Probably not. Maybe the, and during the last turn in, because they were going to inversion, but to me that probably was more of a weird something happening in the cockpit Mm -hmm. than disorientation. Mm -hmm. That leaves the
2: engines. Amidst the wreckage, the propellers were found to be at pitch angles of 40 degrees, an appropriate setting for a go-around, which is what the CVR did show that the crew was trying to perform. But before go-around procedure had commenced, the flight data recorder showed something really interesting. There is a graph of the flight recorder data. I am showing it now. Look at our website. It's cool. And it's kind of hard to explain. As the crew was drawing the engines back to land, the number 1 engine dipped below zero torque, and it actually went negative to -9% torque while they were still in the air. But the number 2 engine did not. They were mismatched, which is bad.
0: Yes, that is very bad. Obviously. <laughs> Louder air.
2: Yeah. Investigators went through and tested different parts of the engines, and they found that the number two engine's Total Air Pressure Total Air Temperature Sensor, or PT2-TT2 Sensor, because that exists.
0: Yep, that is quite the name.
2: Had an anomaly, such that there was a mismatch in fuel between the two engines. Great. This can cause three things. Quote, 1. Slower engine speed response when the speed lever was advanced. Two, faster engine torque response when the power level was advanced. And three, higher torque for a given power lever angle. End quote. Investigators found in the flight recorder data that the engines were closely matched in power during go-around power. So case number two was limited and wasn't as big of a deal. Case number three was found several times in the FDR data. 10 to 20 seconds before the crash, engine number two had a torque about 4% above engine one. And you can actually see it in the graph. You can see the teal line is pretty consistently above the green line, just slightly. Yes. So, investigators went back to listen to what was going on with callouts in regards to engine control. And this is when they discovered that the captain took control of the engine throttles.
1: Again, with the, if you're not flying the airplane, why are you doing the stuff with the throttles? This is so,
2: again, standard operating procedures for not just any airline, but any kind of dual pilot flying. As yep. we've said, one pilot is flying, one is monitoring. We've discussed this many times in many episodes.
1: So...
0: poor crew crew resource management (laughs) 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 poor crew resource management
1: hashtag crm yes so for
2: the captain to deviate from that precedent is cringy very cringy (laughs) investigators surmise he may have done this because of the two previous go-arounds and wanted to alleviate some workload from the first officer but it was also kind of in the brief it's weird yeah it shouldn't have been allowed by like company standards Cringy. So he was the one bringing the power back on the engines to land, and he did so until he heard both engines go idle. I am... I didn't find them specifically say this anywhere, but I'm assuming that they... That he did this based on hearing and didn't actually look at the levers, because he actually brought them below flight idle. It was at this point that the number two engine was at 0%. It was at flight idle, because it was running higher than it should have been, which then sent the number two engine into reverse.
1: Oh, wait, what? What? Okay.
2: So the number 1 engine was in reverse and the number 2 engine was at flight idle. Okay, wait. My
1: brain just got really confused. So they were in reverse?
0: One s- engine.
1: One engine was in reverse. So the the green the one with the the green line was the one in the
0: reverse. The number
2: 1 engine was in reverse. When it yep. when I say it went into negative torque, I should have explained this. When it went into
1: negative torque, it went into reverse. Okay. Yeah, louder air, not yes. good. Now Sorry, I see. Now, now like I to... see the connection. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sorry, I should, have, <laughs> I should have
2: explained that better. My apologies. Yeah. So one engine was in reverse and the other was at flight idle, which caused a severe roll to the left. Yes, that yes, that makes sense. Basically,
0: yeah. with a propeller airplane, what it does is it pitches the props to flat, so that it's not producing any forward motion. And as a matter of fact, it can, in theory, reverse the airflow. But more, what it does is create a wall. And when you're flying forward, that wall pushes outward and reverse.
2: Which we talked about in episode 5.
0: Yes. And so...
2: This is similar to the Embraer
0: 120 that It is. It is. Yes.
2: It entered a rapid roll to the left of 40 degrees, and the crew called out for go-around power, which then caused a roll to the right because the pilot flying was pulling to the right before the engine increase, which he probably wouldn't have done if he was the one controlling the engines.
0: So essentially what happened was an over an overcompensation for an issue he didn't understand.
2: Well, it was because he wasn't controlling the engines. Right. And so because he felt a sudden roll to the left, didn't know what was causing it, he decided to go right. Pretty intuitive. Ex- pretty yes. excessively to get it to go back.
0: Well, but he was full right, and it wasn't rolling to the right.
2: No, it wasn't, and that was when they went to go around power, when the engines were both going forward, and so it's like, oh, you want to go right? Let's go right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so yeah. one of them was going backwards, so they were they were going they were tilting to the left, and the fir- first officer, who's the one flying the plane, you know, trying to go to the right, full it's right, not yep, going right, so they hit toga power, it advanced the throttles, and they're like, okay, <laughs> they just yeah. All the way
0: <laughs> because the then both side. engines went because back then, to normal yeah, power, but then he's actually pulling the airplane to the right. Oops. So, Ouch.
2: that's how they ended up inverted. Ouch. In case that was unclear. But the possibly more disturbing find in this engine anomaly was how long it had been there. Investigators found that this condition had existed for more than 106 flight hours of the aircraft.
1: Not good. No. Without being reported. Nope. Well, did anyone really know? I mean, 4% is very very close
0: it's small but here's the thing it's it can be noticeable because it does pull the airplane still slightly to one side
1: how might this
2: happen investigators took a dive into the operations of this crew and airline and boy
1: are we going for a ride yeah you can just expect because this is the second version probably not great just wait both crew were
2: pretty new to their positions. The captain had been promoted to captain four days prior to the accident, and had a bumpy and disrupted training program prior, making it not as effective of a training program. Nah. The first officer was just hired by the operator three weeks ago. Ooh. <laughs> no. And was still trying to adjust to new procedures. On top of that, his line training with the operator was not completed, and should have been flying with a training captain until his line check was Ooh. passed. Ooh. Not good. So you technically shouldn't have been flying. We'll leave that one alone.
0: And they shouldn't have been flying together.
2: No. So very, most, very new crew. Most airlines have a policy embedded into their scheduling to not pair a new captain with a new officer. But this one
1: didn't. Yep. Just ignored it.
2: It's fine. I think the in the air disasters episode they called it green on green. Something like yes, that. Yes, green on green. So don't put a green person with a green person? pretty self-explanatory. The investigation then turned to the crew's schedules to see if fatigue was a factor. So let's go to the captain's schedule. He worked on the sixth from 12.05 p.m. to six 6.55 p.m. Then the next day from 7 a.m. to 6.45 p.m., almost 12 hours, that's a lot. It's a lot. On the 8th, he started duty at 7.15 a.m. and ended duty at 7.50 p.m. and he landed at the Isle of Man, but somehow got back to Belfast. So investigators assume he was on a flight on a Metro 3, departing at 8.20 p.m. and arriving at 9 p.m. So he had a long day.
0: He did. He was only on the airline for... F- this is something I find interesting. He was only on the- with the airline as captain for four days. Here's the thing. He had 25 hours... As captain of a Metro liner.
2: Let me finish. In
0: those four days.
2: I know. Because of this super long day, he was required to have a minimum rest period equal to his duty. Instead, he resumed duty on the 9th at 6.15 a.m. four and a quarter hours too early. So he didn't get enough rest time. Not at all. Resty Rest. He finished that day at 6.40 p.m., a more than 12-hour day. The rest time required after that shift would have meant he could commence duty on the day of the accident at 7.05 a.m. Instead, he started working at 5.55 a.m. Not good. An hour and 10 minutes early.
0: Consistently early.
2: So, too long, don't read, he was fatigued. But at least he was working the day shift. The first officer worked from February 7th and each day until the 10th on a mix of night mail flights and day passenger flights. On the 7th, he worked from 7pm to 7.30am on the 8th, which exceeded maximum allowable duty time by two and a half hours because of how many sectors were crossed into. On the 9th, he flew the same schedule and flights as the captain had, flying with him for the first time, and was in the same fatigue violation accordingly. So who the heck was running the show and allowing this scheduling? Well... That's a really complicated question, as it turns out. I ask you to picture the meme of the guy looking like a crazy conspiracy theorist with red yarn connecting all of his ideas on the wall like a crazy person. That's what investigators look like right about now. Why, you ask? It turns out that Manx 2 wasn't an airline. It was a company. So Manx 2 was a shell company known as the Ticket Scheduler.
0: Yep, they would sell the tickets to the customers.
2: That's all that they would do. The actual operator was a Spanish aircraft certification holder called Flightline SL, and tickets were sold through Manx 2, an agency based on the Isle of Man. This ticket seller operated for four different operators, which became a series of commuter routes with service centered around the Isle of Man and going to Ireland and the UK. But the operator also didn't own the plane. It was owned by a Spanish bank, but it was leased to an owner, Air Lada, and then subleased to the Flightline SL holder as the operator, along with another Metro 3. Is anyone else confused yet? Very. (laughs) Well, this made made oversight an absolute nightmare, which made maintenance even more of a question. Yep. Who was responsible for maintenance? Because it's owned, operated, tickets sold, and sublet all by different...
0: All by different companies. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so, who was responsible for maintenance, you might ask? Well, it was technically the operator responsible, Flightline SL, who was responsible. But maintenance was performed by yet another Spanish company known as BCP Aerotectics SL. Now, Nick mentioned before that the crew were the ones making configuration changes, switching out seats between cargo and passenger flights. Well, it turns out, under Part 145 op- operations... Flight crew are allowed to do minor maintenance, or checks, but configuration changes are considered to be aircraft maintenance and should be performed by the maintenance organization, not the crew.
0: Yet, somehow they were getting away with this.
2: Also, these reconfigurations were not being recorded or certified in the plane's technical log. Also, the configuration created a non-standard seating configuration on the day of the accident.
0: Yep. Basically, they were able to do this operating under the radar because... In order to trace the line from the airplane's existence to who's actually flying it and where is unbelievably difficult.
2: Yep. Now, this plane had been with the operator for three months prior to the accident and had no reports, no pilot reports, no defects, no maintenance entries in that time. None. That's not good. There wasn't complete records of any pre-flight inspections.
1: That's also not good. That's, this like, is, huge no-no.
2: This is all highly suspect and sketch. There's no way a plane has no maintenance problems for three months. Not even a light bulb out or replenishment of oil or hydraulic fluid. The only reason that investigators were able to say for sure that the engine mismatch was there for 106 hours was because that's when the number two engine was installed and documentation associated with the engine swap did not have a power level split check at Flight idle. So when they swa- swapped engines they didn't test to see that they were operating at the same power level. Yeah, they didn't
1: calibrate them together.
2: Yeah. The findings and recommendations will get more into the oversight changes from this event, but the big deal was that the Spanish aviation authorities didn't even know that this operation existed.
0: Yep. Which is a monumental problem. Nobody even knew this airplane basically existed. I mean, it was properly registered and everything, but the airline, the airline and the airplane were completely operating under the radar, essentially.
2: And because they were operating under the radar, they weren't making a whole lot of money. No. So something that the Air Disasters episode did mention, I didn't read it in the report. I ran out of time. But they weren't paying their flight crews on time. Yeah. That's bad. That's how needy for money they
0: were. Well, and think about it. You have all these different companies involved. And the pilots work for only one of them, and that company hardly even knows the airplane. For one. So in what world can they even help train this crew?
2: But in addition to all of that, they the com- because the company was hurting so much for money, they didn't have lines of credit open for things like fuel at other airports. So part of the reason that investigators think that the crew is so dead set on landing at Cork is if they had to land at another airport... They, out of their own wallet, the pilots would have had to pay for fuel for gate time yep, uh, to get the passengers to Cork somehow on a bus. They would have had to pay for that out of their own pocket Yeah, because you can't just charge it to the airline because the airline has no money.
0: Yeah, this is just all really bad. Basically, they, literally, they would have to pay for stuff out of pocket. The whole reason they didn't divert to an airport that they didn't operate at was because they didn't want to have to pay for stuff. Out of their own pocket. The and fuel expensive. The airline wouldn't help them out. And fuel is very expensive.
1: So who's to blame them, right? But there's a difference between... And first of all, why are you working for a company that's so sketch?
0: Because it's the job they could get, probably.
1: Yeah, that's unfortunate. But it's a little sketch when you're like, I'm not getting paid on time.
0: Yes. There's a lot of sketch things about it. I mean, you're talking about... The airplane's owned by a bank in reality, and that bank leases it to the physical owner, who is a company in Spain. Who
2: then sublets it to then, the operator.
0: Right, subleases it to the quote unquote operator, which is a totally different company, unrelated. And then they let Manx 2 sell tickets and operate the airplane. So it's a nightmare. Though, even though, yeah, nobody even has any clue who they are or what they do.
1: Yeah. Yikes super sketch
0: yep and then you have a whole nother company in spain to operate the maintenance on the airplane yeah no Mm-mm. all of this is just how can anybody keep track of anything they couldn't right which is why this happened right and all of the companies were probably okay with that
1: well and <laughs> fortunately i hate to say fortunately but because this happened it unearthed the entire scheme going on right, right. so it put it to a stop Right. <laughs> right. It, the stuff they were doing was basically illegal. Right. So they were shut down. Right. I'm assuming that is something that comes up, which we will get to in a second.
2: Let that cat out of the bag now. In December of 2012, Minx 2 ceased all operations and was liquidated. Yes.
0: So. Unfortunately, I don't even think there's anything they really could have been legally charged with or taken down with. But the company didn't make much money as it was anyways, and then they were out one of the two airplanes, that they were operating way too often.
1: And not taking care of.
0: Not taking care of, and then operating it as a sketchy cargo operation overnight, where it wasn't even legal to change the airplane back and forth. That's just, there are so many things wrong with that. But unfortunately, Manx 2 didn't really have a ha- much of a hand in that, because they didn't even physically touch the airplane or know anything about it. They just sold the tickets for it. That's their excuse. Yeah. Break it a break. Break it a break.
2: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: I actually did know about this flight, although I forgot quite a bit about it, obviously, because I was like, whoa, wait a minute.
0: But that's okay.
1: Now I remember some of this stuff.
0: And we so, were we were originally going to have a guess, but we kind of just going it, with it. It fell through, so. It's okay. We're going with it.
1: We I'm doing the findings and the recommendations and things tonight, as we normally do, and I do know these flights. So we're going to start with this finding. The flight was undertaken without adequate consideration of the weather conditions at the destination and alternate aerodromes or airports.
0: So we didn't talk about this much, but essentially the flight, the flight crew took off knowing what the weather was going to be. They took off knowing that the weather was going to be poor, and there's no way they could have operated that flight safely in that weather. It was not legal. And they just took off anyway, which, yep.
1: not good. They found that the flight plan specified one alternate airport, whereas weather conditions at the destination were such that two alternate airports were required. Which they kind of did put a feeler out for other airports, but yes. they should have had another alternate on top of the one they had, too.
0: Right. The problem was is that they didn't, like we said, they didn't even want to land at an alternate if the operator wasn't didn't know about that airport because they wouldn't pay for anything.
1: Right. They found that the flight crew were not aware of the weather conditions at the alternate airport specified on the flight plan. So, the one that they had, they didn't know the weather for. They found that deviations from standard operating procedures by the flight crew were apparent from the CVR recording. Uh, Yeah, the captain taking over the engines and he wasn't flying the plane. Right. That's a problem. Big no-no. They found that the CVR recording did not contain any reference by the flight crew to an aircraft system anomaly or failure, so they didn't feel like there was an issue with anything. The crew didn't. Right. They found that three instrument approaches were commenced and continued beyond the outer marker equivalent position, while meteorological (laughs) conditions were below the required minima.
0: So, in other words, it was below what the airplane was legally allowed to fly in, and yet they continued their approaches past their the outer marker which was already a decision point
1: they found that all three approaches were continued below decision height without adequate visual reference being acquired we've talked about this they went below minimums and they still couldn't see the runway and so they made that decision too late to go around it's good that they went around it's not good they They decided to go around too low. Right. Well, and the
0: third one proved why that was a problem. Yes.
1: They found that power levers were operated by the pilot not flying, or the captain, on the final approach contrary to normal operating procedures, which resulted in a lack of coordination between the flight crew and the control of the aircraft at a critical phase of flight. CRM, CRM, CRM. Okay.
0: It's huge.
1: They found that during the third attempt to land in low visibility conditions, the aircraft descended below decision height and the power levers were retarded below flight idle an action prohibited in flight because, as Christy said, it makes them go in reverse. Yep. They found that recorded data indicates that the number one or left power plant entered a negative torque, which is the engine, by the way, regime, which is negative 9% minimum value, whereas the number two or right engine reached a minimum torque value of zero percent so it went just to idle as this asymmetric condition was coincident with yes. the initial roll to the left yep to a bank of 40 degrees by coincident they mean it happened at the same time yeah because, yes, I, my, my caused, brain
0: just it was causal
1: Coincident, i was like the
0: heck? <laughs> okay coincidental.
1: And this has been a look at Miranda's brain. Thanks. <laughs> they found that a go-around was initiated at a height of approximately 100 feet. The aircraft then rolled rapidly to the right, resulting in the right wingtip striking the runway surface, following which the aircraft inverted. They found that the aircraft came to rest in soft ground, 72 meters to the right of the runway center line, 189 meters from the initial impact point. They found that post impact fires occurred in both engine nacelles.
0: Ma- nacelles? Nacelles? Yes, that's just a fancy word for the uh the engine cowling like the cover around oh, the engine. Oh, oh,
1: okay. So the engine cowling which were expeditiously extinguished by the airport fire service. That sounds correct. Expeditiously. Yeah. They found that six persons, including both flight crew members, were fatally injured. Four passengers suffered serious injuries and two minor injuries. They found that the toxicology reports relating to the commander and co-pilot, or the captain and flight first officer, show that carbon monoxide ethanol, prescribed drugs, or drugs of abuse were not detected. So they weren't under, they didn't inhale carbon monoxide or were on drugs. <laughs>
0: right. Right.
1: They found that the ILS on runway 17 was functioning normally with no warning or failure indications evident during the final approach of ECITP. A post-accident calibration flight revealed no anomalies with the ILS system.
0: Yes, basically all of that to say, ILS system was working, and that was just to prove that that wasn't a. factor in this
1: right they found that the air traffic control personnel at cork performed their duties in accordance with the procedures and promptly sounded the alarm when they lost radio contact with the aircraft the atc did their job good job atc they found that the technical log for ecitp recorded no defects between the 9th of november 2010 when the aircraft re-entered service following heavy landing repairs and the date of the accident Which is highly suspect. Yeah. It's like, there was nothing wrong? Are you sure? They found that the aircraft was regularly changed between passenger and cargo configuration by unauthorized flight crew and without appropriate entries being made in the aircraft technical log, which big no-no. Big no-no. Big Big no-no. They found that the last 75-hour service check before the accident was carried out on the 5th of February 2011 at Barcelona, no defects were recorded on the documentation related to this check. The number two engine sensor was inspected for damage, condition, and security as part of major inspection, which was certified on October 11, 2010. It was also checked for the condition and security On a service check in the week before the accident. No sensor defect was noted during these inspections, but there was obviously one.
0: Biggest thing is like, for some reason, this airplane was the best airplane in the world, and that reason being that nobody wanted to admit anything was wrong with it. Yeah. But there was a lot wrong with it.
1: Yeah. Bad boo boo. No. Yes. They found that during the recertification work carried out on the major inspection, engine ground runs were carried out using Form 503 from the Phase Inspection Manual. As both engines had been installed during the inspection, it would have been appropriate to use the ground run procedures maintained in AMM 71-00-30. This would have included a power level split check at flight idle, which would have found the issue with the engines being at different
0: So in other words, the procedures weren't even carried out correctly when it was being maintained.
1: Right. They found that at the time of the accident, the number two engine sensor was defective, resulting in non-normal fuel scheduling and power delivery from that engine. FDR data shows that this defect was present throughout the 106 hours of available FDR recording, but it was not recorded in the technical log.
0: Yep. So it was there the whole time, but nobody ever said anything about it.
1: Yeah, which is, you know...
2: Suspicious, suspicious. Yes. They found- and again, you you guys can look at the website. We'll have the graph posted and you can see that the en- number 2 engine
1: is consistently just a touch higher than the number 1 engine. Yeah. Yep. Just a touch. The torque split between the engines caused the defective sensor caused by the defective sensor became significant when the power levers for both power plants or engines were operated below flight idle because they went into reverse right the investigation identified no other pre-accident aircraft defects that were relevant to the accident
0: that doesn't mean there weren't any but they didn't cause a problem
1: yeah it wasn't related right the operator was unable to find the FDR data frame layout available contrary to regulation. They found that the seating arrangement on ITP comprised 18 passenger seats in a non-standard layout. That's kind of a problem.
0: Yes, yeah, so in other words, when they put the seats back in, they didn't even put them, put bit, them in the way the airplane right, was certified yeah. to carry them. Yikes.
1: At least they didn't put more seats than it could hold.
0: Well, yes, but this could be a problem anyways because it could cause weight and balance issues.
1: One, two...
2: If, for whatever reason, they did need to evacuate and had the ability to evacuate, it could have blocked ways. It could have, yeah. Yeah.
1: Because
2: we don't know how those 18 seats were configured.
1: They found that no evidence was found of the effective employment of crew resource management principles. They had no CRM. Not at all. They found that command decision-making was not effective with a flat cockpit authority gradient being evident.
0: Right. So more CRM-related items.
1: They found that... Aircraft commander was inadequately trained in the command role and thus was ill-prepared for the situation in which he found himself on the day of the accident. The The commander is the captain. Yeah, yeah.
0: the captain was not prepared for the flight.
1: They found that the implementation of the operator's command training program was inadequate and was not in accordance with its operations manual, Part D. They found that the co-pilot's training and final line check were not completed. We talked about that. Yep. They found that the pairing of a newly promoted commander, or uh, captain, with a co-pilot, or the first officer, who had recently joined the operator was inappropriate and was contrary to the EU OPS. So they shouldn't have been flying together because they were both new to the company.
0: Right. They were both green.
1: The captain did not have sufficient rest prior to the commencing duty on the day of the accident. So he didn't, he was fatigued. Yes. They found that two days prior to the accident, the co-pilot exceeded flight and duty time limitations and operated a final sector in breach of regulations. That's also a problem, because you're having pilots fly a plane
0: full of people. Exactly.
1: The co-pilot did not have sufficient rest prior to commencing the duty on the day of the accident. So, you know, both of them being fatigued, that's a great thing. Yeah. Not. They found that it is likely that the commander or captain and particularly the co-pilot or first officer who had flown three raw data approaches were suffering from tiredness and fatigue at the time of the accident. And we just talked about that. Yeah. They were tired, which and is not a good mix. for Right, flight. and
0: trying to do a very difficult approach.
1: They found that the aircraft was operated on the Belfast City to Cork scheduled service without establish- establishing a line maintenance station at either location.
0: Yeah, so if something was wrong with the airplane, they couldn't even fix it either place. Nice. They would have to send it to Spain.
1: <laughs> they found that the air traffic surface's flight plan for FTL-400C, the flight, the accident flight, was filed by a ground handling company in Denmark.
0: Yep. <laughs> yeah, I didn't bring that up either because I thought it was really strange. But yeah, the flight plan that they had, normally you do it at at an office with a dispatcher, on the airport, yeah. on-site at the airport that you are departing from. Yeah. Or at the very least, you're in contact with operations at the airline's base. But no, they used a third-party company in Denmark, so this is yet again another party involved. Yeah. In order just to do their their flight planning and their operations.
2: So you know that whole image I said with the red
1: yarn connecting everything everywhere?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> They found that the operator had neither a contract nor communications with the ticket seller. Great. So, if the ticket seller was selling too many tickets...
0: They didn't know that.
1: That would be a problem.
0: Right. They wouldn't And they know. wouldn't have known. Right. They wouldn't know.
1: They found that there was inadequate and ineffective oversight of the remote UK-slash-Ireland operation by the operator, which did not have effective disposal of the use or operation
0: of the aircraft. They would f- say all, the, all, the, all around, that just means that nobody was qualified to own, operate, or fly that airplane.
1: No. They found that the owner, which did not hold an operating license or air operator certificate, had effective disposal of the use and operation of the aircraft. They found that the ticket seller had an arrangement with the owner for the supply of an aircraft and crew according to its schedule. They found that the IATA-NM code, which had been Issued exclusively to FLM Aviation by the International Air Transport Association, was used by the ticket seller for all its flights, including the flight, the accident flight, with the agreement of the FLM
0: Aviation. So that's really that's a really confusing to thing too. But basically, their flight their code. their flight code. So we talk about it all the time. It's basically the
2: it's the two in the case of IATA, it's the two letters in
1: front of the flight. Sometimes we use the IATA, sometimes we use the ICAO. the ICAO. It depends on which one makes more sense to us to use. So um,
2: in this instance, we're, we're going to be using the IATA code of NM, or November Mike.
0: Yeah, but the, basically what they're saying is that the code that was provided to them is what was basically showing they were certified and using being operated as an airline, but they were using that. Kind of as a blanket for so many different parts of their operation. And they used it on this flight as well, but that just doesn't... It doesn't show that they actually had anything to do with that airplane.
1: Yeah. They found that the ticket seller's marketing and operational activity was such that it was portraying itself as an airline, which it was not. Right. It was just a ticket seller. Right. They found that some of the operational responsibilities of the operator as AOC holder, including operational control, were being inappropriately exercised by the owner and the ticket seller.
0: So they were way overstepping what they actually do.
1: Yes. They found that the competent authority of the state of the operator informed the investigation that it was unaware of the remote operation in the UK and Ireland. So the the people in Spain were like, we had no idea this was happening all the way over here.
0: Right. Well, yeah, because you think about it, the owner of the airplane, they subleased that airplane to another company, and they assumed that company was doing whatever they wanted to do with it. Well, that company was doing whatever they wanted to do, and what that meant was letting another company fly the airplane. Yeah, And they had no idea who that other... The owner had no idea who that other company was. They had no idea that the subleased company was doing that. It's all just super confusing. It's very confusing.
1: They found that there was no... oversight of the remote operation by the competent authority of the state of the operator, which we just talked about. There was no no oversee of that, of the entire company owning this airplane.
0: Well, yeah, and part of that, too, is they're saying that Spain didn't even look into who owned this airplane and where it was and what it was doing.
1: Obviously, because it was not where it was supposed to be. Yes.
0: Well, nobody, again, this airplane was basically a ghost plane. Nobody even knew that it existed or what it was doing. Somehow it was somewhat legally operating, because air traffic, control, air traffic controllers could see it, people Barely. could book tickets, but we're talking about something that's... It's publicly there, but at the same time, nobody even has a clue what it is or what it's doing. Yeah, it's so
1: sketch. They found that the two SAFA inspections carried, carried out on the aircraft involved in the operation did not identify substantial operational deficiencies, even though it probably had some. They a found... Lot. They found that the SAFA inspections were limited in scope and did not provide a substitute for oversight by the state of an operator. And they found that, the last finding, they found that the training standards prescribed under EU OPS 1.955 regarding nomination as commander do not provide adequate requirements for command
0: upgrade. So they didn't have any sort of real, they weren't following the guidance or requirements For training and promoting their crew. They just did it anyways. Yeah. Whoever they saw fit.
1: So, the probable cause, and then the contributory contributory causes. So, the probable cause. Loss of control during an attempt go around below decision height in instrument meteorological conditions.
0: Yep. Or IMC.
1: Yes. So, contributory causes... And it says, note the contributory causes are not listed in order of priority. Good to know. One, continuation of approach beyond the outer marker equivalent position without the required minima. Two, continuation of descent below decision height without adequate visual reference. Three, uncoordinated operation of power levers and the flight controls. 4. In flight operation of the power levers below flight idle. 5. A torque split between the engines that became significant when the power levers were operated below flight idle. 6. Tiredness and fatigue on the part of the flight crew members. 7. Inadequate command training and checking during the command upgrade of the commander. 8. Inappropriate pairing of flight crew members. And nine, inadequate oversight of the remote operation by the operator and the state of the operator.
0: So all basically the things we've said, but all these things are just to say that the operation was super sketchy, the airplane wasn't being operated properly, the crew wasn't trained properly, The everything about this was just kind of a mess, and it all led to pressure on the pilots, who were probably just trying to do the best they could to make some money and do their job, and... They ended up in a sketchy situation, they ended up in a pressured situation, they weren't trained properly, and they didn't know that, and they ended up in a very terrible situation.
1: Yeah, it was sketch. And they didn't know that, they were just hired on as flight crew, right? Right, and... right.
0: you really can't blame the crew for this because they just didn't know, and they weren't trained properly, and this just, it was all around handled poorly from everything above them.
1: Yeah. So, recommendations, there's only 11. So, they recommended that the Director General for Mobility and Transport European Commission should review the obligations of member states to implement penalties in accordance with the standardization regulation. EU number 628 slash 2013, as a result of transgressions, including flight time limitations as provided for in regulation EC number 216 2008.
0: That one's listed very confusing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically make sure the people who are supposed to be in charge of this airplane
0: mm-hmm.
1: know where it is and what it's doing. It's yes. basically
0: what it There's says. no oversight.
1: They recommended that the European Aviation Safety Agency should provide guidance to operators concerning successive instrument approaches to an aerodrome, hashtag airport, an IMC or night VMC where a landing cannot be made due to weather reasons and incorporate such guidance in commission regulation. Uh, number or 965-2012, accordingly. I,
0: right. I think that one's a little... Worded a little confusingly, too. And I think that, while it's valid, I don't think it actually had much to do with the issue overall. It, there were poor weather conditions, but basically they're saying there needs to be more clear guidance and regulations about about how to handle operating a flight in poor weather conditions and what that looks like for the crews and such. And... In this case, yes, they didn't handle that correctly, but also that wasn't even necessarily the smallest factor in this.
1: Okay, so I'm just going to read through these and summarize them because they're kind of a little confusing. So the next one is that they recommend the the European Aviation Safety Agency, excuse me. Or the EASA. The EASA, yeah. They review the council regulations that were amended by... The commission regulation uh, to ensure that there's a syllabus so that they know the appropriate levels of upgrading commanders mm-hmm. upwards. So when do you become a first officer? When do you become a captain, etc. Right. And making those super pro- like prominent. Right. That's what and making sure it's carried out properly. Correct. The next one is they recommend flight line SL should review its current operational policy of an immediate diversion following a missed approach due to weather
0: so basically they didn't yeah. divert immediately they continued three separate times
1: and uh, they should have diverted after yes. the first time really yes um, and especially after the second time yeah uh they recommended Flightline sl should implement suitable and appropriate training for personnel respectable for flight safety and accident prevention so making sure that something like this doesn't happen again
2: and for the record, Flightline SL, I think, is the
0: operator. Yeah, yes, Flightline operator. SL is the operator. Yes, correct.
1: The They recommended the Director General for Mobility and Transport European Commission should review the role of the ticket seller when engaged in providing air passenger services and restrict ticket sellers from exercising operational control of air carriers providing such services, thus ensuring that a high and uniform level of safety is achieved for the traveling public. So making sure the ticket seller isn't in charge of, you know, getting the the crew for the airplane and things like that. That should be the operator's issue, not the ticket seller. Um, and that the ticket seller is not showing that they're an airline when they're yes. not.
0: So this doesn't really... I'm not going to say this doesn't happen in the United States, but it's very, very rare. And the thing is, too, is that apparently, especially here in the United States, we have this, especially these days, it's changed a lot in the last 30 years, basically, but there's this sense that if you're not flying on an airline you've ever heard of, you don't want to fly them. That's kind of how it's handled in the United States. Is like, oh, I have no clue who that airline is, so I'm not going to fly on them. Yeah. And and so a lot of this just doesn't happen much in the United States for that reason. But also there's so much oversight, and there's so many requirements that it's very difficult in the United States to build a shell company like Minx to. That works the way they do yeah. in the United States. It's way too difficult to work around regulations that way. It doesn't doesn't happen. And now in Europe, it's a lot. That's a lot harsher and difficult to do too.
1: Uh, they recommended the EASA review the process by which AOV, AOC variations, excuse me, um, are granted to ensure that. There can't just be airlines popping up out of nowhere. Right. They need to make sure that they check into airlines and where they come from and where they're operating and making sure they're legit.
0: This is why this is part of why it's so difficult.
1: AOC is an air operator certificate.
0: Yes. And this is yeah, this is a big reason of why it's so difficult. Because also in the United States It is very difficult to get an air operator certificate, actually. There are so many requirements you have to meet and follow before the FAA will sign off on it. And it's not to say that in Europe it's not difficult either, but it's more difficult now than it was when Manx 2 was created. They were basically just offered one, and they took it.
1: Okay, be prepared for the next one, because the first part of it's in Spanish, so I'm going to do my best. Cool. Uh, They recommended that the... Agencia Estatal de Seguridad Area. Do you want me to say that? Well, I got most of it. The second one, I'm like, eh. They should review its policy with regard to continuing oversight of air carriers, in particular those conducting remote operations. So, this would
0: this, be the, 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 the people Spanish in Spain. Authority. Yeah. The need Spanish. need to figure it out. Yeah, basically the Spanish Authority on Aviation.
2: Agencia
1: Estatal de Seguridad Area. Yeah. Yeah. Something like Sorry. that.
0: Aviation. I'm
1: working on the Spanish. It's I am too. Not yeah.
0: It's basically Aviation Great. Security and Safety Management yeah. in, in Spain.
1: They recommend that the G- the Director General for Mobility and Transport European Commission should review the regulation in the context of implementing regulation... In order to improve safety oversight, including the efficiency and scope of SAFA inspections and to provide for the extension of oversight responsibilities, particularly in cases where effective oversight may be limited due to resource issues, remote operation or otherwise. So making sure that the SAFA do proper oversight so they know what they're looking at.
0: Yeah, basically saying when you get audited that that audit looks at everything and also that it's happening Frequently. And actually that it's checking. Yeah, regularly. And that 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 it's checking the right things. Checking all the right stuff.
1: And that they know what they're looking at and not just inspecting something that. Is bouncing all over the place. Yeah. They recommend that the Director General for Mobility and Transport European Commission should review the scope of the Air Safety Committee and consider including oversight of operating licenses issued by member states and the processes by which such oversight is carried out.
0: Again, all the oversight stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And the last one, they recommend the International Civil Aviation Organization, or the ICAO. I was going to (laughs) say should consider the inclusion of information regarding the flight-specific approach compatibility of aircrafts-slash-flight crew within the proposed flight and flow information for a collaborative environment. C- CRM.
0: CRM, yeah, to some extent. And understanding what that role means on uh, on a specific airplane for a specific crew and how that plays a role in where you fly under what conditions.
1: So, so, that is
2: all. On these planes is printed the name of the ticket seller, the website specifically. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Manx2.com. Um, Manx2.com. And so I decided to pull that up. And there is a message on here. Oh. From January 28th, 2014. And it is the Manx2.com statement on the AAIB final cork report. So I'm ah. just going to go ahead and read it. We welcome the final report published today by the Air Accident Investigation Unit of the Irish Department of Transport transport which conducted a full and very de- detailed investigation to the crash in february 2011 of flight nm 7100 from belfast to cork which was operated by Flightline bcn the operator as referenced in today's report the investigating impact of the tragic accident at cork three years ago is not something that the passing of time has diminished and the thoughts and sympathies of all those involved are first and foremost with the families of those who lost their lives and those who were injured Manx 2 ceased trading in December 2012, but the former directors and employees of Manx 2 continued to give the AAIB and the AAIU their fullest cooperation throughout the three years of the investigation to ensure that the full facts could be determined in any lessons learned to improve future air safety. You know what this podcast is about. Manx 2 contracted all the flying to EU airlines licensed and required and was the operator to operate in compliance with the stringent standards and controls of the EASA recognized to be among the most stringent in the world under the oversight of their national aviation safety authorities. Unfortunately, the report is clear that the prime causes of the accident were decisions made by the flight line crew in adverse weather conditions compounded by the inappropriate crew rostering by the operator and a lack or, and a significant lack of oversight by the Spanish Air Safety Authority. The operator of the flight was flightline BCN Riera de Tena 18 to20 Barcelona 08014 Spain their phone numbers and stuff like that. Interesting. So they didn't exactly, like, say sorry or take account for their role in any of it.
0: But I do feel that the investigators felt that they were at fault for operating, period. They shouldn't have even yeah. existed no. as a company.
1: I mean, selling tickets is one thing. Because you can buy plane tickets, right, well, on, you... on websites in the United States that have nothing to do with the... Actual flights, but those ticket sellers don't say they're the ones operating the flight, well, yeah,
0: and when you start talking about companies like that like Expedia, here, or orbits, or whatever, they are you're buying those tickets through those companies, but you can tell what airline it's actually for, yeah,
1: they always tell you
0: and in the United States of course, always a major airline because they have to contract with those airlines to sell tickets,
1: whereas here
2: the ticket seller it was what the flight was operated under. It's what right. was
1: printed on the plane.
0: The ticket seller was literally able to basically be an airline without being one.
1: And that's a problem. Big time. Which is why they no longer exist. Right. Yep. And why this will not happen again in Europe. And yep. hopefully anywhere. I doubt yeah. it would happen in America. Oh, no, no, no. no. It, it wouldn't even happen when this happened. I say America. I mean like North America.
0: I shouldn't N- specify. Now, we do have the the whole system of, like, commuter carriers in the United States where they operate under the name of an airline, but they are actually a a sub-airline. But you have a
2: contract with that airline. Right, they
0: are contracted to that airline directly, and there's a lot of oversight that goes into operating that way.
1: Yeah, we've talked about that before. Colgan Air. Yeah, and they
2: also don't put, like, when you go look it up on flight radar, it's SkyWest. Yep. Yeah. So you know what you're getting yourself into. Exactly. Hopefully. In a manner of speaking. We probably should change the name of that episode to CJC, not CO.
0: That's fine.
1: Why? Because it was Colgan Air, not Continental.
0: Oh. That's fine.
1: It's fine. It was operating as Continental Express, but yeah. we constantly say in the episode Colgan Air. it's Colgan Air, well, not and, Continental.
0: And CO kind of. They're so close, anyways. Yeah. It's like,
1: eh. Okay. So, again, this was... Manx, Manx 2. Manx 2. Flight
0: 7100.
1: Thanks again for listening this week. If you feel like you need more, do have a Patreon. Yes. Do have a lot of cool stuff on Patreon. Our, uh... First class members, we're apologizing again. I sent you guys a, a message the other day, but hopefully we're updated by the time you hear this episode.
2: We are a little behind on our episodes.
1: Yeah, we're trying really hard. It's really hard because, you know, all three of us are working full-time now, and I don't have access, really, to get to where we um, record everything onto, so when I'm bored at home, I can't just do stuff. Right. That'll change in a, in a few weeks, but... We're working really hard to get those out to you. Um, And again, we're sorry that is taking so long. Uh, We do have like three queued up. You'll get like three at (laughs) once. Once that's done. But we just want to let you guys know that we're not not forgetting about you. Again, thank you so much for listening. Check us out on our social medias.
0: Submit your listener stories.
1: Because we are very much looking forward to reading those. Very much. Yes. Remember, if you don't want to put your name or... Like if you work for an airline... We won't tell everyone. We'll keep it no. anonymous.
2: First of unless all, unless you don't want us
1: to. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to stay anonymous, it the form makes you put in your name, but you can tell us in the body of your story, please don't say my name on air. I work for this airline. Or you can put in a fake name. If you call Make yourself, it funny. Call yourself Darth Vader, please. That'd be great. Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> That's my thing. Uh, it doesn't matter. If you don't put in um, a fake name, we'll make one up for you if you want us to. Um, and leave a cool title on it so we know kind of what's going on. Um, we're really excited. Again, we, we put these out. We record these two weeks in advance. So we actually haven't announced Started. it yet, <laughs> technically. Although some of you have been looking at it because again i can look on the website and see where you're looking so i'm like someone looked at it like 10 times today in singapore and we see you we see you we know you're looking at it but you didn't do anything with it i think because you don't know what it what it is yet so it'll come out on tuesday but and that's okay yeah but if you guys have any funny stories september is funny stories uh aviation stories it could be a trip, or something you saw on a flight, or if you work for an airline, something that happened while you worked for that airline. Do we want to say a date that we're coming out with it? Uh, we don't. We don't really have a date yet because this episode airs on the fifteenth. I know. Um, it could come out like after this
0: episode comes out, but I don't know. I mean, it should be probably in October.
1: In well, reality. depends on how many stories. Yeah. We so. You'll hear that whenever we end up getting, depending on how many stories we get and when, it'll either come out toward mid to end
0: September or early October. That will probably start to determine what this looks like.
1: Yeah. So submit your stories. They're cool. We are super excited. We're going to post episode and talk about a story we had over the weekend. So yeah. enjoy everything. Uh, stay tuned. Stay safe. Stay smart. Wear, Wear a, a mask. mask. And uh, we'll we'll catch you next week. Keep your speed up.
2: Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landing's Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landing's Pod. Also,
1: subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen.
0: If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
1: This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy.
0: Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
2: And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora.
1: Catch you next time.